Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I'm joined by Steve Baines, a Salesforce Certified Technical Architect and Vice President with Apps Associates in the US. In the episode, we explore a little bit about Steve's early career, how he started in IT and then found his way into the Salesforce ecosystem. Then we focus on Steve's entrepreneurial journey, where his entrepreneurial spirit comes from, and the realities of being a business owner with a family. We discuss why Steve has been driven to start new businesses after previous successful exits, what some of the key factors are behind business success, and explore how he balanced being a business leader with being a technical leader in the Salesforce ecosystem and staying on top of the technology. The last couple of years have been busy and exciting for Steve, so he shares the story around merging his business with another company and then talks about how they were acquired by Apps Associates. This all happened in the middle of a pandemic, so Steve discusses what this whole journey was like when meeting people face-to-face was impossible. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did recording it, and if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. So we've spoken before. I was chairing a panel of CTAs um, for, a, I think it was a 24-hour user-led event um, at the beginning of COVID. And, and we obviously talked about your journey to CTA, and a lot of my audience would have seen that. But I have some very juicy topics for you that aren't related to your journey to CTA today. So yeah, really excited to hear more about your story. Well, I'm looking forward to sharing it. As much as I like talking about being a CTA, i like to talk about my journey that got me there. Um, I think it's interesting. It's probably not quite what folks would expect. Let's start at the beginning then in terms of your entry into the world of IT. And, and I guess, why was that something that appealed to you? Was it a strategic move? Is that something you'd planned? Completely accidental. I was the kid who you know, I had a computer growing up. And um, I remember when I got an 80 megabyte hard drive, I thought there's nothing I can't do with an 80 megabyte hard drive. It was I was so excited for it. But my brother and I, I remember we hacked into our Atari gaming console and we somehow, I don't even know how we did this, but somehow we figured out how to take over control of the graphics card. And we were actually drawing pictures on our television with our Atari gaming console. It was pretty cool. So I've always had an interest in tech, but I also had a very keen interest in becoming a physician. So when I left high school, I had plans on pursuing a medical career. And went to school, started a family young. I ended up joining the United States Air Force as a medic. So I was going to finish my education and then I was going to go to medical school. That's what I wanted to do. That I had been, I wanted to be a physician as long as I could remember. And then I realized how little of my children's lives I would have experienced if I went to medical school because <laughs> they were young. So I opted out. Um, I left the military and I moved back here to New Hampshire and did a couple odd jobs here and then and uh, decided I was going to go back to school and get my degree. And I said, all right, what am I going to do? And I found this one job doing database work. I knew very little about databases. I had kind of self-taught myself some stuff. And boom, that was it. I was in IT just like that. And that was in 2000, so 22 years ago at this point. 
I looked back at your obviously your LinkedIn profile when I was planning out what I wanted to ask you today. And, um, you know, a lot of people that I will have on the podcast that go on to be a, a CTA, and, you know, a lot of them would have studied software engineering and things like that. But you did like all kind of varieties of IT role early, like you did hardware stuff, you kind of played lots of hats. Yeah, and that happened completely by accident. So this first job I got, this company ended up filing for bankruptcy. I filed for bankruptcy on September 10th, 2001, mind you. And that date is significant. Yeah. So that was a Monday. As we all know, September 11th was a Tuesday. So the day before, all hands company meeting gets called and the CEO tells us we are all out of a job because the company's filing bankruptcy. I was rehired an hour later. And it just so happens because the company was still in business, they had an ERP system that was powered on Oracle. And I was an Oracle DBA. At this point, I had gotten my certification. That certification saved my job. A lot of people who got let go, I mean, this was, you know, the terrorist attacks happened the next day. And of course, as you know, the world stopped. Nobody was hiring anything. So a lot of those folks were out of jobs for months and months and months. But the side effect of that is I inherited the entire IT infrastructure. Microsoft Exchange Active Directory, a phone system, which I knew nothing about. <laughs> so I basically had to teach myself. And this was Google existed, but you didn't have the wealth of information that you have on it today. So I'm buying books at Barnes and Noble, and I don't know what Active Directory is. I don't know how to build a mailbox, you know, nothing like that. So uh, it was basically trial by fire. I had to learn it because it's I had to be supported. So do you do you remember when you first kind of became aware of cloud computing, and did you see it as this thing that was going to kind of change your life and the trajectory of your career? I remember it. I had no clue at the time it would have any impact on anything that I was doing. So cloud computing has been around for a long time. It just has had different names. There used to be a term called ASP, Application Service Provider. Um, so early 2000s, that's really what it was, is you were just using somebody else's service. In this case, I remember specifically, it was this mail service called Postini, which I don't even think is, exists anymore. But this whole concept of buying somebody else's software and just using it through your web browser, I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Had no clue at all at the time how much it would impact everybody's lives. And then fast forward, you know, a couple IT jobs later, I get asked by my boss and the CEO to implement this thing called Salesforce. I didn't even know what a lead was. I knew nothing about Salesforce. So again, I was here like, okay, I've seen this story before. I've been handed technology, which I know nothing about. I know I can figure it out. So me and the director of marketing figured it out, and we implemented Salesforce and Eloqua side by side, which is now called Oracle Marketing Cloud, just because we were told to do it. And then next thing I know, I've built my entire career off of it. I had no perspective on it at the time, Ben. What did you implement back then? Was it just Sales Cloud? At what stage was this? It was Sales Cloud. So it was re-implementing it technically. As I'm sure many of your listeners know, Salesforce likes to sell into sales organizations. So it was implemented by sales. It was a bit of a mess. So we had to kind of fix that up. And yeah, we were implementing Salesforce automation and lead automation with Eloqua. And then I think shortly thereafter, we implemented Service Cloud. Yeah, wow. So when you got your hands dirty with Salesforce, was it like a light bulb moment where you kind of thought that this is now where I want to kind of focus? It took a little bit. It wasn't the light bulb flicking. It was probably more like a slow dimmer switch getting moved up. When I was working for this particular company, I had kind of established this really good working knowledge of both sales operations and marketing operations. So that was kind of the space that I was in for quite some time. 
And when I eventually started my career in consulting, I was doing both of those things. You know, I mentioned Eloqua, Marketo, I was doing a lot of that stuff, but there was always a mix of Salesforce in it in some way, shape, or form. After doing that for maybe a year or so, I'm like, this is the way to go right here. I mean, I went to Dreamforce, got all amped up like everybody does. I came back and I'm like, this is what I'm going to build my career on. And at that point, it was a conscious choice. Yeah, nice. And you, you've obviously um, been in consulting for a long time, but you've had your own ventures, your own businesses. Looking back through your career, it seems you've had an entrepreneurial spirit for some time. So where did that come from? Where was the driver to be a business owner and build things? Took me a while to actually figure this out because I have been asked this question before and I look back on the trajectory I took and I'm like, why did I do that? And of course, one motivation was to earn a living, was to make money. But why didn't I just go get a earn a paycheck someplace as opposed to starting a business? And I give full credit to my mother. My mother started her own business with my uncle, her brother. And looking back after kind of starting businesses and understanding what's involved, the effort, the risk, the stress, I look back on that time with her. And actually, it was their sister as well. My aunt started at the time. Looking back on what the three of them went through and what they put at stake, it was very inspiring and motivating to me. And I told this to her. I'm like, I give her credit for the drive that I have. Sometimes you're you're seeing things happen and you just don't quite understand what's happening until you get a chance to look back on it and really, you know, truly appreciate what occurred. Yeah, for sure. So with the first venture, the first time you went out on your own, was that just like a gap in the market you saw? How did you go from being an employee to an entrepreneur? When I transitioned jobs, the, the company I was leaving, this was the company that had filed bankruptcy, they needed my help on some things that I had built or was supporting. And I had a lot of institutional knowledge. So they're like, would you consider, you know, doing this on the side and helping? And I probably gave them, you know, $25 an hour hourly rate or something like that, which back then felt like a million dollars. I'm like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And it was kind of like my first time dipping my toe in the pool. Like, I can actually make money. Like, people ask me for things and I can produce things and I can make money. So intoxicating is way too strong of a word here, but it was kind of that feeling like, oh, I could really get used to this. So that turned into a couple of referrals, you know, a couple small clients, and it was a very, very small company, but I, I sold it. I ended up selling it for not a ton of money. It wasn't life-changing money, but it was the first time I'd gone through that. I was like, hmm, kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> I want to do that again. I'm going to guess your hourly rates have gone up since the $25 that you were charging back then. Just a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I find interesting, obviously, you go into business and you have to wear two hats, right? Because you're a technologist and you're at the forefront of the Salesforce market in terms of, you know, you went down the CTA path, you do the CTA, you train people and you have to stay relevant and up to date with the technology, but you also have to have this business hat on. And, and you know, there's this thing like, don't always work in your business, work on your business and, and all of that. How do you separate the two, but make sure that you're effective and you're staying on top of the market, but also growing and building a business? If I told you I was able to separate those effectively, I'd be lying. It's very hard. It's very, very hard. When you start a business, found a business, anything like that, the lines are very blurred. There's no clear boundaries around anything. It's like you just, so you talked about two hats. I'm going to slightly rephrase that and say you have to wear every hat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, picking insurance, you know, finding office space, renting furniture. I mean, it could be anything. When I started my last consulting company, I knew those things were necessary. I knew it to be true. 
but you know, once I experienced it, it was like, wow, this is, it's all consuming. I mean, it's 24 hours a day. You know, in one minute you're having a technical conversation with somebody and five minutes later, you're talking to the HR director about a payroll problem. And by the way, somebody just told you that the toilet's clogged in the employee bathroom. So it's got to be clean. <laughs> so it's, it's hard. It's very hard to delineate the two. I use the phrase context switching all the time. When you're in this business, you have to be able to context switch. Because uh, it could be you could have 12 different meetings in the same day with 12 different clients and the ability to just move from thing to thing to thing. And all, by the way, keep track of all the action items that you got from all those meetings. Yeah, for sure. It's not something you really can learn in school. You just have to experience it and learn how to do it. And and you mentioned you left the medical field because you wanted to spend more time with family and then obviously running a business and having all of these things. Like, Did you have a good work-life balance through the journey of consulting? I think my kids and my wife would all say, no, I did not. Uh, and I think I would admit that as well. You know, I just use the phrase, it's all consuming. When you start a business, it's your life. It really is. It's very difficult to shut it off. In this day and age, working from home, it's remarkably easy to spend 15 hours in front of your computer in one day. It really is. And, you know, you start at 530 in the morning, you look up, it's eight o'clock at night. And, you know, your wife and kids have fell asleep on the couch because they're waiting for you to stop working. Unfortunately, it's far too easy to do that. So, you know, if I were ever to, you know, write a book or do a podcast like you do, that one of the things I would say is create that work-life balance as early and often as you can. Because uh, if you lose it, it's it can it can have a significant impact on just your overall outlook and how you feel about things. It's absolutely something I could have done a better job at. Some people say, well, you're just a hard worker, you're a workaholic. I'm like, yeah, but that's, I don't always view that as a, you know, a badge of honor by any means. Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of people often do see that as a badge of honor, right? But there's no pride in just working the whole time and dropping the ball with other things. And I think, you know, ultimately, as a business owner, you do have to make a choice. I've got a a six-month-old daughter now, and I've really made the decision that I don't want to scale a business. I want to have a good work-life balance, but I don't think you can have both. Like, I think it is, you have to make a mend. You you can have both, but you, you have to, like, consciously basket each one and make sure that you're investing enough time like i think if i really wanted to scale talent hub now my family life would suffer and it likely would you'd have to make some difficult decisions about where you wanted to focus your energies growing a business i actually said this to my daughter yesterday when you say yes to something you're saying no to a lot of other things and sometimes those things you're saying no to are extremely important they're vital you're saying no to your partner to your kids or your parents or you know the PTA at the local school. I mean, everything comes at a cost. And so yes can be a very dangerous word, especially when you own a business where you say, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do that or I'm gonna do this, because it can really have a very negative effect. When you make a conscious decision to grow a business, you know, after having done this a couple times and making many mistakes, you can look back and say, okay, what could I have done differently here to you know, scale the business differently or not create as much of a burden on my time or take on as much responsibility. And obviously it comes back to funding and you want to have money to hire people and things like that. But part of it too is trust and, you know, finding the right folks and leaning on somebody else to help grow your baby. And that's not easy to do sometimes. It's like, no, 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 this is, this is my company. This is my thing. I'm going to make this happen. Um, and you're just here for the ride. So it is, it's absolutely a mindset that you have to try to get into. 
Yeah, and that, that goes back to the point that you did have to wear both hats, but some businesses, you'll be the business owner, but then you'll hire the best technical person that you can find. But you, you were never going to be able to find someone that was more technically strong. Well, I mean, there would be people in certain areas, but the fact that you were a CTA as well as the business owner, you kind of do end up having to to be involved in all of those discussions, right? Because people would look to you to be the leader technically and also the leader of the business. So where do you ever get any rest? It's interesting you bring that up because that is certainly a dynamic that was created by getting my CTA certification is whether you want it to be or not, that's how you were looked upon. So it became very difficult to remove yourself from certain situations, which, you know, in essence, it kind of just creates this extra burden of work and workload that maybe wouldn't have been there prior to that. It's the reality in the world of Salesforce is that that's just when people understand what that is, they were like, well, I want to talk to the CTA. So let's get the CTA on the phone. Trust me, there are many, many silver linings and positive things about being a CTA. But I, you know, I put that on a very short list of things that probably aren't always the greatest. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, we've touched on the importance of people, right? So like, as you're growing a business, you need the right people in, in the business. And having had success with different businesses, we know people are important, right? You know, you build the business around the good people you can find. But what else have you found to be absolutely key to having success with business? Uh, having a market. I know that's obvious, but having a market for your product or service, obviously, solid financial footing is important. But really understand your market. You know, if I look back on everything I've done throughout my career, businesses I've started, understanding that landscape and that market opportunity is the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. Because if you're building something and you know, a product or service that there's no market for, why bother? Or the market isn't quite what you think it is. I've made that mistake, both good and bad. I've worked with a startup who we nailed it. We nailed the market opportunity. I've had other ventures where it was a swing and a mess. <laughs> You know, funding is funding. There's plenty of cash out there to get. I mean, you can get investment dollars, you know, but if you hit the nail with the market, then ideally your customers are funding your business rather than investors. Which is like, so it's not the, the common way for, for things to go right now in the market. Like we're seeing all these layoffs and things where people are just getting funding, funding, funding and, and never delivering a profit. Yeah, it's always boggled my mind as to <laughs> how these companies continue to land these massive funding rounds and they have never made a dollar in profit. You know what really surprises me how much it's celebrated, like raising funding. Like I get it, but it's like, oh, amazing, you've just raised this money. Whereas actually, like, wouldn't it be a bigger celebration if the funding wasn't required because it was organic growth and, and the opportunity was still like realized, but the profit was coming from customers or the money was coming from customers? Yeah, I think there's some diametrically opposed forces in the startup ecosystem that the things that really we should be celebrating are not and the things that we shouldn't be celebrating are we talked about you know living and breathing your business this whole hustle culture i can tell you from firsthand experience and people i know that starting a startup and running a startup it's not for the faint of heart and there are many people who you know struggle you know struggle with just the day-to-day -day and you know are we going to survive you know, how do I navigate through this situation? And it can be daunting. It's These are not things you learn in business school. These are not things that people who haven't started businesses or have had their own money on the line can really relate to. So it's challenging. It can be very isolating. 
but at the same time, you'll see things where people talk about how, you know, I'm working 20 hours a day and so-and-so only sleeps three hours a day and they're exercising at two o'clock in the morning. Those are the things where people are, you know, clapping on LinkedIn and things like that. I'm like, that is not what we should be celebrating here. We should be celebrating the fact that that founder is talking about mental health or stress relief or, you know, various things like that. Yeah, it's so true. Those hosts are famous now, right? Like I wake up at 3 a.m., I do this, I do that, and this is why I'm successful. And it's just like, but I think now the market is so out of touch with that. Like people don't, and it's amazing now that a lot of people are talking about mental health and, you know, work-life balance. And and there is, you know, people are laughing at those people now on LinkedIn for posting it. And you get the mock ones where they're taking the mickey out of them for, you know, I don't do any of this. I still have a great life. So we know the startup world is a challenge and lots of stress. I imagine you've had a lot of um, of sleepless nights over the years with the ventures you've been in, but you've exited a few businesses and a lot of people dream of that. And you mentioned the first one wasn't you know going to set you free and uh, an early retirement, but why do you keep doing it? What was it about the, the first exit that made you want to go into another startup and from there into another one? Like, What excites you about that world? I kind of look at people who have started companies and had successful exits maybe one time as having a little bit of luck. Whereas they do it again. And if they do it again, if they do it again, that, that proves success in my opinion. And this was really just probably call it my own personal chip on my shoulder that it's something I wanted to prove to myself after I did it one time, I'm like, I can do this again. I think I can do it again. And then I proved it to myself that I could do it again. But I want to be very careful about using the word I here because it's it's so beyond I at this point. With this latest company that I sold with my partner, Jeff Oskin, it was way beyond I. It was about we. It was about everybody. But it was more about, okay, I'm going to do this now in the, in the vein of being the leader and setting the direction. Like, here's where we're going, folks. Here's the hill that we're going to charge up. Let's go. And that was a very educational experience for me in a positive way of taking a company to exit from that perspective. Because that was my that was my first time from founder to exit that I had done that. I had co-founded other companies with other folks, but that was the first time kind of A to Z, so to speak. So at the moment you founded the business and you were really clear with people that was the goal? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't think I ever articulated the goal as exit. And... I did not start the company to exit. Of course, you want to exit. I have had the fortune of working with some fantastic mentors. And one of them in particular, he always said, he's like, grow a healthy, profitable business. The exit will take care of itself. This is where I kind of struggle with the news about celebrating funding rounds and you know Series F and things like that. It's like the goal clearly here is exit. It's not about running a profitable company. It's clearly exit. And I guess if you go into it knowing that and you're transparent about it, then, hey, you know, good for you. But I never really thought that overtly about exit. Did it drive me a little bit behind the scenes? Of course it did. I mean, I'd be lying if I said otherwise, but it just wasn't the primary factor that really kind of propelled us forward by any means. And a lot of people that are listening to this story for the first time now, they won't know that you merged businesses and before the exit, right? So you, uh, I think it was early 2021, during the pandemic, you merged a consulting firm that you'd built with another consulting firm. That's like a bold decision, right? Because it's once you've done that, it's hard to unwind. So how did you know that they were going to complement each other? Like the two businesses, how did you go into that confidently knowing that that would work? I will tell you it was a terrifying decision, you know, because it's, you've grown a company, 
Jeff had grown his company, I'm sure he had very similar feelings where it's like, okay, on paper, this makes sense to do. But how do we look beyond paper to say, okay, is, is this something that actually we can do? And I think back to, I think it was probably the very first conversation that he and I had. We talked about why we wanted to do it and what was important to us. And we both talked about people and culture and our values. I mean, that was really what was driving us. And having been acquired before, having merged before, some good experiences, some not so good experiences, I had certain red flags that I was looking for certain warning signs, certain good things I was looking for. And Jeff and his team were able to check all of those boxes with me and my team and my investors. I felt very comfortable. Jeff and I align as people very easily. We have a very nice complementary skill set. What he excels at, maybe I'm not as strong. What I excel at, maybe he's not as strong. But we also have a shared set of core strengths that we both have. And we found that both of our companies had that very similar kind of Venn diagram overlap. So I look back on that transaction and I tell myself, I'm like, I don't think I could have de-risked that any more than I did going through that process. I have never regretted that decision to this day. It was absolutely the best thing to do for the business. For me personally, when I used the word terrifying earlier, it was a shift for me. Because I was stepping out of the role of CEO, which um, Jeff assumed for the entire company. My role shifted to something very focused on selling and marketing. So for me personally, it was like, okay, how do I take myself through this transition now? The company's going through this transition. How do I take myself personally through this transition? That was uncharted territory for me. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned investors there. So you had had people you would have to report back to on growth of the business and things like that prior. But having it just overnight must be like this completely different business, right? You, it's no longer just you and, and you make the decisions, you're steering the ship. So in a way, I guess that there's comfort in that, that there's more mass, you know, you've got someone to bounce ideas off of. But like I said, you can't unwind it. So I can completely understand why that would be terrifying. And that moment you're shining the paper, you must be questioning, am I giving up or am I gaining? You know, it's, it must be one of those kind of weird balances where you just don't really know how it's going to unfold until it does. It was when Jeff and I first started talking, we talked about our roles very early on in the process. You know, and I said, what do you want to do? And he asked me what I want to do. And I said, well, you know, I've been a CEO for a while. I've kind of checked that box, so to speak. So, you know, I think I could help the company in other ways. And I said, what do you want to do? And he says, well, I'd like to be the CEO of the merged company. I'm like, perfect. We've got agreement on that. Although we didn't like maybe explicitly write out all the ground rules as far as how that would work. He and I think very similarly, and I'm sure he was used to making decisions on certain topics without consulting with anybody, as was I. And we both did that. Neither one, I think, to the detriment of the company, but I think probably one of the first times that I had learned of a decision that he had made as CEO, my initial reaction was, why wasn't I consulted on that? But I very quickly followed that with, he's the CEO of the company. You know, That's a decision that he's empowered to make as the CEO of the company. That's a decision that I gave him permission to make when we merged these companies together. So it was a very... Um, eye-opening experience for me in a way that it's like, okay, this is my new normal and this is okay. The adjustment period was very short, fortunately for me, but it was something that I'm like, I had to bring myself through that process to get to the other side. And 
that conversation at the beginning when you first sat down, it's worked out amazingly, this this arrangement, because obviously you've gone on now for, for the business to be acquired, the two merged businesses to be acquired. But had you gone into that initial discussion as I want to be the CEO and him going into the discussion as I want to be a CEO, it would have probably ended the conversation right there, right? Would have been over. Yeah, it would have been over. Yeah, which is crazy, right? Because you you could have done that. Like that could have been a discussion that you could have been, I want to be the CEO. You know, I've grown this business. Why would I not be the CEO? We both could have said, I don't want to be the CEO. <laughs> yeah, <it's> true. <laughs> <laughs> You're correct. It, yeah, it, it would have been a short conversation at that point. Everything just aligned. I don't think I could have scripted it any better. Don't get me wrong. We had our challenges just like every other company does. Merging teams and you know, us and they and all those natural things that happen because we're human beings. Of course, those things are going to happen. You know, but if you step outside those kind of softer side of things, everything else just aligned. Like I said, I don't think I could have planned it any better. And just at a high level, I guess, what was the overlap in terms of the offerings? So the two business, how did they kind of gel from a, you do this, we do this, this makes sense? So Jeff's company was called Jolt Consulting Group. Uh, Jolt had a specialization in field service, Salesforce field service. It used to be called Field Service Lightning. It's just field service now and Service Cloud. And my company, Forcivity, specialized in Service Cloud and Experience Cloud. A little bit of field service, but not nearly as much as Jolt. So it was just a great overlap of service offerings. They're just the right mix. So in essence, bringing both have Service Cloud experience, Jeff's team's brought the field service experience, we brought the experience cloud experience <laughs> to the table. So it was jokingly always call it one plus one was three because it really was. Yeah, nice. And then obviously, like I said, the businesses came together and then have been acquired. So um, how long was it between the merger and the acquisition? And then also, what was it like going through an acquisition during a pandemic where you probably couldn't be in front of the people too regularly? It was challenging, certainly. One of my colleagues said to me the other day, we were having a meeting with the prospect and we talked about the history of the company. And he kind of said, yeah, we just were acquired. That was my second integration activity in 12 months. I was like, yeah, that, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And I think certainly they bore the brunt of it. The team bore the brunt of it from just bringing two companies together a year ago and then doing it a year later. I, I mean, I, quite frankly, I look back on that. and I'm like, I'm not sure how they did it. It was quite Herculean, in my opinion. Doing it in the pandemic just adds a whole other dynamic. Um, I mean, Jeff, I only met him in person a handful of times. Um, some people I work with, I've never met in person. But we had kind of, everybody was kind of used to it by that point. Everybody was working remotely. So it wasn't like it threw this really difficult curveball into the mix that, oh, how the heck are we going to bring this together virtually? Give an example that the CEO of our company, Adrian, he and I had never met in person. The one time we were supposed to meet in person, he uh, got sick, so he couldn't attend. And so he he reached out to me and he's like, we've never met in person. We need to make that happen. You know, so it's sometimes you'd have to be very intentional about those types of things. Yeah, it's crazy, right? It's just uh, like it's insane. Had you told yourself five years ago that you'd go through that journey and not meet the CEO of the business that you'd be uh, joining it? You just would never believe it. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. I mean, I've talked to him a hundred times, but I, I had never met him face to face. And how has, obviously, you've been in consulting a long time. Um, how has COVID 
changed your relationship with staff and also customers? Do you feel, I'm sure you're not going to say it's been negative, obviously COVID's been negative, but the actual relationship because you know, you're still a successful business and you've grown and been acquired and things like that. But just the dynamic of those relationships, has, has it been significantly different to the relationships you had before? Not now. If you asked me that question two years ago, I would tell you it's been a tectonic shift, like everybody would say, I'm sure. Uh, we're used to it now. I mean, we've had some team gatherings where some folks aren't comfortable being in group settings, so they've opted out or folks mask up all the time or folks want testing. Honestly, it's the same dynamics you're going to face anywhere, traveling, going to the grocery store type of thing. So it's our new normal. We're used to it. It's part of the process now. So I'd say now it's really not disruptive. Kind of like, okay, how are we going to accommodate this? We're having a team meeting in a month. And I'm sure it's going to be one of the topics is, okay, you know, how do we make sure people feel safe and this hand sanitizer, you know, all those types of things. So it's not going away. (laughs) That's for sure historically were you someone that wanted your team in front of you and, and being in an office or were you always quite up to to speed with the the ways of remote working i am a very social person i like being with people so i had in very intentionally structured the company around having a physical presence an office and i think most folks enjoyed that you know being able to look over a cube and talk to somebody different things like that so when the pandemic started and we all went virtual, I can tell you I personally struggled with that because I was so used to being with folks. I enjoy it. You know, you miss the body language, just the the visual cues, shooting the breeze over a show last night, having a whiteboard. Uh, so it was a big adjustment for me. It's a big adjustment for all of us. We've all adjusted. And, you know, we're doing what we're doing right now. We're You and I are halfway across the world, but... Um, this is the new norm now is staring into your webcam. <laughs> so what, what are your thoughts? You are a social person. You enjoyed that side of things. And, and it could be easy for you now to try to revert back to that and be like, right, we're going to get everyone back in the office. And, and we're seeing that with some companies that are like, right, you need to be in the office four days a week. Or what's your take on that? Because you could have done that and you could do it because of that's your preference. But do you think that's kind of a bit outdated now from directors and, and founders and owners of businesses that want people visible? I think it's a little old school thinking at this point. You know, company that I work for now, they we have an office presence in Boston. And it's you can go there whenever you want. Some folks, um, they go there on Wednesdays, as an example. Like, I'm going to be there on Wednesdays. You want to get together. We can do things, get lunch, you know, whatever it is. It's more now opting in as opposed to mandating. I wouldn't want to be in the commercial real estate business right now yeah. <laughs> for that very reason. So this is the new norm now. It's like, okay, we, we do have a physical office space, but you can choose how you use it, how you interact with it. You're not going to be forced to have to use it historically when you were hiring did you have like a national view of we can hire anywhere or did you hire locally because you wanted people in the office initially as the company was growing we were hiring a lot of folks that we knew so by default they were in the area so it was like we have an office come on in and like oh great come on in but as we started to grow in the talent pool not that it was tapped out by any means but we started to have to go outside of our local talent pool Geography became very less important very quickly. People in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Texas, you got power and Wi-Fi, that's all you need. You can work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way to get the best people, right? Because you will tap out the local area if you're hiring at scale and for specialized skill sets. But 
it's interesting because I've seen companies revert back now. Not all companies, obviously, but there are companies that, you know, because they are saying we need someone in the office, like they're losing out on talent, whereas their competitors are hiring internationally and, and nationally, and they're looking for the best person for the role, whether they're within 10 kilometers or, or miles of the office or not. So yeah, I think a lot of people can take information and guidance from what you're saying, because it is a bit outdated now, only looking in, in your postcode area. Well, it's economic too, at this point. I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but fuel prices here are through the roof. You know, they've been climbing and climbing and climbing. They started to go down a little bit, but you know, if I told my team, like, hey, listen, you got to start coming back into the office, they're going to do the math real quick and like, wait a second, my commuting costs are twice what they were a year ago. So it's, you know, there's real impact to that. There's quality of life too. I mean, my life is completely adjusted around working remotely now. Getting up and going to an office every single day would be, it would be very disruptive. It would be disruptive to my groove. And if we told our team like, hey, listen, you got to start coming into the office, it would completely change their lives too. So it's, that's the reality now. So it's not just a matter of signing an edict and saying you're in the office twice a week because a lot of folks would be like, nope, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go work over here where I can work full time from home. (laughs) Yeah, so true. Obviously, when a company is acquiring, like it kind of makes sense what they would look for, like a profitable business, you know, a lot of upside, continued growth, good team members, all of these things. But when you're being acquired, obviously the valuation is going to be important. That's one factor. But I guess you would need to be comfortable that the business that you're rolling up into is the right business for your team, your people. Going through that journey, what did you look for? Like, What was important to you from a company that was going to acquire you? Jeff and I had the same conversation with folks we were talking to about the same exact things that he and I first spoke about. Values, the people, Acquiring companies is easy. Integrating companies is very difficult to do. That's not my saying, but you know, I say it all the time. This is no different. I mean, we were very, very intentional about ensuring that we were considering partnering with a company that shared the same values, cared about our people, would invest in our people. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we didn't do anything perfectly by any means, but I know that the intentions were there. Uh, And they continue to be there around ensuring that this was the best possible experience for the team. And of course, you could look at any situation and be like, well, we could have done that differently or maybe made that a different choice there. But our hope all along was that we aligned with another company that felt the same way about our team, shared the same values, same culture, and really believed that work was really not the purpose of people's lives. It was an interruption to their lives. So you want to make it the best experience possible. And was that really apparent with Apps Associates immediately that it was the right match? It was immediate. You know, if he ever listens to this, uh, Adrian King was a huge factor, the CEO in Jeff and I's decision. Very, very down to earth, approachable guy, CEO of a very, very large company, very accessible, and just he just cares. He cares, and it comes across as very genuine. So that that was a really, really big factor in the decision was how we felt about bringing our team over to that team. And um, my final question, which I a um, bit of a curveball, but if, if you were going back now and starting a Salesforce consulting business for the very first time, is there anything that you would definitely do and anything you definitely wouldn't do with all the knowledge you have now? I would specialize immediately. Being all things to all people is a really difficult thing to do in the marketplace. 
if you look at all the different skill sets and expertise that you can have in Salesforce, if you went out to market and said, I can do sales cloud and service cloud and field service and experience cloud and CPQ and this and this and this and this and this, you kind of mix in with the masses. You're not really known as this is the go-to implementation partner for this or for that. And although it generates revenue, it becomes very difficult to set yourself apart from anybody else. It's difficult to go to market. It's difficult to message. It's difficult to talk about. So if I did anything differently, it would be pick a focus, stick with that focus, and just master that focus. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed hearing more about the business side of, um, of yourself and your background and uh, not just the technology, but you know, really getting to grips with how and, and why you've uh, gone on the journey you have. And it's uh, an inspiration to many, I'm sure. And if anyone does want to reach out and pick your brains or ask any questions, where, where do you hang out online? Uh, mostly on LinkedIn. So just search me on, on LinkedIn, Steve Baines, B-A-I-N-E-S. I'm on Twitter uh, as Steve Baines, but I had to spell Baines, B-A-I-N-Z, because I couldn't get my real spelling because somebody else has it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, folks can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. That is definitely the best place to get a hold of me. I wonder what the other Steve Baines does, the one that got nipped in earlier than you on Twitter. I wonder if they're a technologist. He has, there's one tweet from 12 years ago and that was it. So I think it's a dead account, but um, I've reached out to it, unfortunately, with no answer. <laughs> You're not considered making an offer? <laughs> if the person would respond, I'd be happy to make an offer, but. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate you having me. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform, as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. And thanks again.